Take your Bibles and turn back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. I don't know if you came in expecting a Christmas sermon. You know, in churches and even in our homes, we have certain traditions that we kind of expect. I know for Christmas, our tradition in our family was that we had a set time where we could get up. It used to be that you couldn't get up before 6 o'clock in the morning on Christmas Day. Now it's, you know, please be up by 8.30 uh, when we have family gatherings uh, for Christmas. But uh, we would always have a time where we'd have a reading of the Christmas story and then an opening of gifts. There would be an uh, egg casserole that would be in the oven, and when we were done opening gifts, we would have uh, that, and Mom would make uh, some uh, orange Julius's uh, and uh, do that. And then we had the whole morning to ourselves, and then we had our, our, our meal time about 2 o'clock, and that was just kind of the expected uh, things that would always happen in the home. And for some, there are other traditions, and I've never really understood the one of matching pajamas, but there are people that have that and other things like that. That's just the tradition in their, their home. It's expected. And it's kind of expected when you come to church in, in December is that you're going to have nothing but Christmas messages on Sunday morning. Now, I will say that. It gets very difficult after a time as a preacher to uh, come up with new Christmas sermons. Uh, but I will say this morning that this is not traditionally a Christmas passage. In fact, it's not a Christmas passage, so I'm not going to get you to think that it is and somehow trick you into this, but it does have application to the Christmas story. So you're going to have to wait till the end of the sermon to figure out what's the connection of this passage uh, to the Christmas story. There is a connection, so if you came here expecting a Christmas sermon, uh, you'll get something. Okay, uh, the Christmas season. But what we have here is a passage of Scripture that uh, is unquestionably one of the most important passages in our Bible as far as God's plan. God's plan for saving mankind. And one has said this, the exposition of Genesis 12, 1-9 must articulate its importance in Genesis and the Bible. It is the central passage of the book of Genesis, the foundation of the Abrahamic promises, and the beginning of the nation of Israel as a community that is worshiping God. Without this passage, none of the rest of the Old Testament would make any sense at all. You have to have this passage. Because what it is, is that God is going to lay out a plan. And it doesn't seem to make sense at first, because when you read the rest of Genesis, you've got all sorts of scoundrels. You go, really? Okay, Jacob, his name means deceiver. I mean, that's how he's known from the beginning of his birth. He's Jacob, the heel grabber. He's one who's trying to trip people up. He's going to be a part of what God has to say right here. That despite... Okay, Jacob. And despite Isaac, and we're, we're eventually going to see, even though Abraham is one who is called by God to do what God had called him to do, and we're going to look today at his faith, he's going to fail. We're going to see that in the next passage that we look at. He's going to be a liar. But despite all of that, God lays out here his plan that he has for the nation of Israel and for all nations. He's going to, as we get further along, explain certain details of this. But here God, right from the start, gives this. And we we have this transition. We've gone through chapters 1 through 11, and we've covered about 2,500 years of human history had the whole population wiped out except for eight people and we've had a whole new population that's come about we've had 2500 years of human history genesis 1 through 11 and then all of a sudden from this point on as we get into this book it's going to slow down we're going to have certain stories now granted it's going to cover 30 years of time or 40 years of time in between each story uh, perhaps uh, but it's going to slow down and what you're going to see is how god is going to work out what he declares to be his plan right here 
And for us personally, as we look at a passage like this, though we're not Abraham, you say, what do I do with a passage of Scripture like this? Uh, It's found in our theme, and the theme would simply be this, is that the one who trusts God's Word will obey God's commands and be a blessing to the nations. The one who trusts God's Word will obey God's commands and be a blessing to the nations. Now, as you look at this passage, we start off and you have God revealing himself. You have the revelation of God's word. God says, here, I'm going to let you know something. Verses 1 through 3, God suddenly speaks. You realize he hadn't, as far as we have recorded in the scripture, spoken directly to anyone outside of Noah for over 500 years. You think about the time frame that that would be. That's the history of the United States as we know it. That's about that time period, about 500 years, uh, that God had not communicated verbally as far as what we know. Uh, The last person that he had communicated with was Noah. And we've gone through all these years, and you have the Tower of Babel, and God, we do have what he's thinking. It's explained to us, but he's not communicating or revealing himself to people. But all of a sudden, he, in the middle of human history, with all these nations that have been mentioned at this point, he specifically targets this individual, Abram, a descendant of Hebrew. He's a Hebrew. Uh, He is a descendant of this to come and reveal his plan that he's going to start with this one Abram and have go right on through the ages. And you say, well, what goes on here? Well, what you had read this morning as you go through verses 1 through 3 is that you have a series of commands and promises. God starts off with a command and has a series of three promises. And then he has another, what some have suggested, a promise and a command that kind of combines together. And then three promises after that that set the course of human history. You say, what's the initial command that God gives here? Well, it's in verse 1, and you see it this way. Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land I will show thee. It's just simply this, leave and go. I want you to leave behind, as you see this, your country. Now you think about this, that some question the fact of, are we going back in the story? Was this when Abram was in Ur, and then they eventually moved to Haran, where his dad dies, and then he eventually moves on? Most people think that this is the statement that God gave Abram back in Ur of the Chaldees, which if that's the case, Ur was one of the most impressive cities in the world at that time. It's not a minor place, a backwoods type of country or place. Uh, This would have been one of the central locations in the the Mesopotamian region of the world uh, in that Tigris and Euphrates Valley. So it's well watered. And you look at some of the buildings that they've been able to dig up from this city. It's a very impressive city. It's not a minor thing for him to suddenly say, listen, I want you to leave behind your country. And I want you to leave behind this. I want you to get from your kindred. okay? Not just get out of the the city that you're in, that you're familiar with, but I want you to get away from the people that you're familiar with. You might say, what's that? Well, we would define it as, you know, we would say this, uh, you're leaving the United States. You know, most of us have never left the United States. It's never been part of our uh, desire to leave it uh, unless we go and travel and visit something. But here it's kind of this. You leave behind all the people that you're familiar with, all the traditions and all the culture that they have, and I want you to leave that. In fact, I want you to go this far. Verse number one says this. I want you to leave your father's house. Understand this, that Terah... His father was a believer in God. Okay, one time there were idol worshipers. We know this about Abraham and his father. They were one time, as Joshua 24 describes them, they were idol worshipers when they were beyond the river. But somewhere along the line, God revealed himself perhaps at this event where he makes it very clear to Abraham what he has to do, and they become followers of God. But what is being said here is that you break all family ties. Okay, you're, you're breaking family ties with people who don't believe the way you do. 
He's leaving Ur, which uh, Ur would have been the center of the worship of the moon god and a number of gods along with that. And here what it's just simply saying is break ties with individuals like that. Get away from individuals that don't understand who the one true God is. They may be family members, but I'm asking you to do this. I'm commanding you to leave and I'm commanding you to go, and the go command is not all that fantastic in one way. You'll why is that? Look at the end of verse 1. Unto a land I will show thee. No description. Okay, he's familiar with all these things beforehand, okay? You leave these behind, all these things that you're familiar with, and I'm going to send you someplace, but no information. So this is kind of a difficult command if we were suddenly in our own situation to have to lift up roots from everything that we had grown up in and move out of country and out of people that we're familiar with and away from all of them and go to a place we're really not sure where we're going to, but that's God's command. But then what God says is this, is he says, if you do this, here is what's going to happen. There is going to be a blessing there's going to be a blessing that takes place. Verse 2, I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curseth him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Have you figured out the word that's key in there? Blessing. Blessing is a word that through the first 11 chapters, you only see it five times. And it's usually talking about uh, the fact of uh, people having children. Okay, you're going to bless you and multiply you. It's the idea that you're going to have a population of people. But that, that's the way it's been used. But here, all of a sudden, as you look at this passage, that this idea of blessing expands. God's not just merely talking about family blessings and prosperity money-wise. What he's going to be talking about, that there is an opportunity to have spiritual blessing. You go, what's that? That ultimately going to be an opportunity to know God, to be connected with God, to know him, to have him as your one true God. Uh, That's what the blessing is going to be. It's ultimately what you find in the Garden of Eden because what mankind was created for was fellowship with God. I mean, that's the ultimate purpose of you as a human being is to fellowship with God. And what he's promising is that there's going to be a blessing, ultimately, the ultimate blessing in life. But five times in this passage, all of a sudden, compacted together, this idea that, okay, there is going to be good things on an abundant level. And you say, well, what are the promises of blessing that are made here? And I'm I'm just going to simply put them, uh, alliterate them out for you to understand what God is going to promise to Abraham and his descendants and ultimately to the whole world. First of all, he promises a place. Okay? Uh, Other places or other ways to describe it is that he promises him a land. What you're going to see throughout the rest of this story is that God is going to be showing him this land that we know as Canaan, present-day Israel, this region of the world, that he's going to be showing him and saying, this is your land and your descendants' land. Now, it's going to be ironic that Abram never owns a house on this land. In fact, the only permanent things that he had, uh, and we're going to see this, is that he put down altars and he owned a grave plot that was it but god says this i've got a place for you a place that i'm going to show you this is what i'm going to give to you and your descendants there's going to be a place for you that's the first promise second of this is that there is going to be a people now in the stories you read through it uh, and before this uh, it makes a statement that is just hinting at the fact of impossibility why don't you go back to chapter 11 and, and look at verse 11 where it's talking about, or chapter 11 and verse 29. It says this, And Abram and Nahor took them wives, and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Izcah. But Sarah, Sarai was barren and had no children. 
Now you think about this, God is making a promise as he gets in here, and he says in verse 2, chapter 12, he says this, I will make of thee a great nation. And yet he has no children. And we know at this point how old he is too. Because you go down as you read through this passage, he's 75 years of age. And what you find is the Bible describes Abram and Sarai, uh, they are well past having children, she especially. Having children. But yet God makes this promise, of thee shall be a great nation. You're going to have a number of people to come after you, and this is an incredible promise. In fact, it's a promise eventually that you get to in Genesis 18 and 19 that uh, they laugh at. That's why Isaac was eventually named Laughter, to remind them that they had laughed at what God had promised. They couldn't believe that this could actually be a possibility after a certain amount of time. But there's this promise that there is going to be a great people. And you think about this, as one individual, how is he going to be a great, a great people, a great nation someday? But that's the promise of God. That this nation that's going to come from Abram is going to be great. They're going to be known and numerous. You also have this, that it's not only a place and a people that's promised, but there is this idea of prosperity that's uh, promised in the middle of verse 2. It says, I will bless thee. Okay. Now before this, blessing was that you had children. This is going beyond this. It's not just simply saying this, but that God is going to bestow upon Abram blessings of, we would say, financially, but also in spiritual opportunities because you're going to see Abraham, a man who walks with God. And that's really the prosperity, the blessing of peace that he's going to have. So he's going to have prosperity, but not necessarily just emphasizing the financial side of this. But he's also going to have, what we're going to say is this, is that he's going to have popularity. Look at verse number uh, 2, and it says this, and make thy name great. And here you got a man who's insignificant, unknown. Now, we know him today, but you think back then, insignificant, unknown, his name is ironic because his name means father and he has no children. But yet his name is going to be great. This is in contrast to what you had in the previous chapter. If you were just reading through this passage and going from chapter 11 right into chapter 12, the last group of people that were trying to make their name great was who? People at the Tower of Babel. You see in, in verse 4, they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach into heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. They're looking to make a name for themselves. They're looking for fame. They're looking for glory. And this is man's attempt to do that, and man completely fails at this and does not make a name for themselves. In fact, the name that they have is Babel, which was not what they intended it to be, but just means simply confusion. That's the kind of name they have. Whenever you think of the Tower of Babel, it's a, a failure and confusion. But then you get to this individual and God says this, I'm going to make your name great. Do you realize today if you were to take a survey and go out and talk to people around the world and talk about a person by the name of Abraham, the majority of the world's population will have heard of him. You go to the Middle East, they know who Abraham is. Now they have some misconceptions of who he is, but he is well known. His name is great. And you say, well, how is that? Because it wasn't him doing this. It was God saying, I've got a plan that I'm going to work through you. And just by the nature of that, your name is going to be great. And even in the story, you begin to see some hints of this. In Genesis chapter 14, he's already considered to be a leader in the, the region around where he goes and combats kings who have come and conquered cities, and he goes and defeats them. And he's even called a prince, uh, as you read through the story, by the leaders around him. But this is not because of uh, anything he's done. It's because God says, I'm going to give you a name that's great. You're going to have fame. You're going to have renown 
because of what I'm going to do. That's the promise of God. But at the end of verse 2, and it, there's, it, this is kind of a, a, kind of a, a turning point in the, the promises here, there's a statement, and thou shalt be a blessing. Okay, when you read that, you could, uh, in the original language, take this as a statement, you're going to be a blessing to other people. Okay, just by everything I'm going to give you, it's just going to happen this way. But if you read it in the original language and you've taken it out of the context, this would be a command. You are going to be a blessing. Now, you say it's because God has done all these promises beforehand that, okay, Abraham is going to be a blessing. Wherever he goes, he is going to be doing this, kind of like a command, an imperative. And the answer is yes. But there is also on the other side of this that since you've gotten all these blessings, you're to be a blessing. Okay, You're supposed to go out and do this on your own incentive. Yes, you will be a blessing, but on the other side there's this element, okay, you need to determine that you're going to be a blessing. You need to be doing this. So you have these promises. You're going to have a place, a people, prosperity, and popularity. And what you're going to do is you go around and about, you're going to be a blessing. You're going to lift up certain things. And we're going to talk about what that is, how it's going to show itself in this passage, how he's going to be a blessing. But then you go on and you have a series of blessings after this. Verse 3, And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You say, what's the promise there? Well, there's two promises. There's the promise of protection. I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curseth thee. The idea is this, that God is going to protect them. And people that are ones that are looking fairly and good to Abraham and his descendants, that God will treat them kindly and give them blessing. You treat the descendants of Abraham uh, with respect and their God with respect. There's going to be blessing for that. But on the other side, you have this, and you really don't see it in the language here, but there's two words for curse. You could put it this way, and him that takes you lightly, I will curse. You know, there were people that were going to say, okay, the nation of Israel, insignificant, who cares, not important, that type of thing. Just thinking that way, God says, listen, you've already taken yourself down a path you don't want to go. To take the descendants uh, and what they've done and who they are, to take them lightly is to ignore ultimately the God that they have. And you've set yourself and a curse and as you think about this a nation of israel's history they're going to have a whole segment where they're going to get together and they're going to talk about blessings for following god and they're going to have a whole series of curses if you don't want to follow god and all sorts of bad things that are going to happen and this is just a simply a promise of god to protect the nation of israel listen if you're following me and you have me as your god there's blessing And people who come to you and treat you with respect and honor, they're going to find themselves being blessed by God. But if they don't, well, they're going to find themselves in difficult situations. They're going to find themselves under a curse. That's God's protection. It's a promise of protection from God. But ultimately what you find at the end in this statement, in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed, is a promise of presence. God's presence. That God is going to be able to bless them, uh, all the individuals that come uh, to Him. Abraham would be the channel of blessing for the whole world. No one would find divine blessing apart from the blessings given through Abraham and his seed. And you think about the nation of Israel and their history, they're the only ones that you find initially that are lifting up the one true God. God visits them, has uh, these individuals as his people. Eventually what he does is he sets up a tabernacle amongst them and then a temple. He sets up a priesthood to help people worship. In fact, as you look at the history of the nation of Israel, they're described as a kingdom of priests. And you're going, well, wait a second. There was only one tribe that were priests, and that was the Levites. But the whole nation at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19 was called called a kingdom of priests. 
And you say, why is that? Because the whole nation was introducing the rest of the world to the one true God. Like the priest and the temple were helping people get into the presence of God and, and their worship and the whole practice there. That's their responsibility. The whole nation of Israel to all the other nations were individuals who were introducing people to the worship of God. The idea here that in thee and all the nations shall be blessed is because the nation of Israel has God's presence among them. He's with them. They have the opportunity to give people the opportunity to know the one true God. And you do see at times individuals who are Jews in even the book of Genesis being a blessing. You think of two occasions. You have an individual by the name of Jacob. We said, yes, he's a deceiver. But you look at the story in Genesis chapter 30 and verse 27, and Laban acknowledges the fact that he has been blessed because of the Lord of Jacob. And you get later on the story, you have an individual by the name of Joseph who's a prisoner, a a slave in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar acknowledges the fact that they have been blessed as the result of the working of the Lord that he's got prosperity in his house. In fact, he doesn't know what to do. He only knows what's in his own hand as far as his meal, but everything else is going great in his house under the hand of Joseph. You have individuals that are being a blessing financially and in other ways, but ultimately the nation of Israel was to draw people's attention to God. And then what you also see is that this is not just merely a statement here that's saying that they're going to introduce them to God. No, it's a promise of the gospel. That there's one who's coming who can make it possible for you to enter into the presence of God. Acts chapter 3, in a message uh, preached by Peter to the nation of Israel uh, and defending their actions, he made this statement, quoting this passage of Scripture. He said this, Ye are children of the prophets, he's speaking to Israelites, and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you, and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Here you have this, that in this nation there's going to be the one who is actually going to be the blessing. An individual, the Messiah, the Son, as Peter describes him. Or in Galatians chapter 3, Paul quoting a scripture and it says this, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen or the nations through faith preached before the gospel unto Abraham saying, in thee shall all the nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. This is a statement of the gospel. The end of verse three there. God is going to send one through whom every nation can be blessed. They can find the opportunity to be right with God. And so you go through this, there's the promise of a place, a people, popularity, that there is going to be protection and a presence. And as you look through the rest of this story of Abram, we're going to play off of different ones of these themes. This is a promise. Eventually God's going to actually make an agreement with Abraham. He's going to make a treaty, as we might say, and say, this is going to happen. I'm not only promised, I'm going to make an agreement with you that this is going to happen. But here you have from the start, Abraham has this revealed to him. You do this, all these things are going to happen to you. And most of the time when people read this, they stop at verse 3, not paying attention to what happens on all the way down to verse number 9. Because what we see is that you have a response of trust on Abraham's part. I was going to sing this at the end of the service, but we have the Lord's Supper here. But uh, there is a song that is in our hymn book that simply says this, trust and obey. See, what God says is He reveals His Word to Abram and says, here's what I'm going to do. You do this, I've got all these promises for you, and... What does Abram do? He remains in Haran and dies and is buried there. No, he's one who we find listed in Hebrews chapter 11 as one who's in the hall of faith. 
You know, why is he in the hall of faith? Well, he's one who represents what an individual does when they have God revealed to them. And that he shows a great deal of faith at this point. And one has put it this way, that the bare faith that was required of Abraham, Abram must exchange the known for the unknown, find his reward in what he could not live to see, a great nation, in what was intangible, a great name, and in what he would impart to the world, a blessing. He didn't see any of those things during his lifetime completely. But yet when God reveals this, what does he do? He responds to the faith that he already has he responds and shows and displays that faith you go what does he do well verse number four so abraham departed there's kind of a generic statement there but what did god tell him to do in verse number one leave same word what does he do he leaves he packs up his goods he takes with him as you read there that he does what the lord had spoken to him and lot went with him and abram was 75 years old when he departed out of haran he took sarai his wife lot his brother's son and all their substance that they had gathered and the souls that they had gotten in haran and they went forth to go into the land of canaan into the land of canaan they came i mean he went out and did exactly what the lord had commanded him to do he takes with him his wife, Lot. Uh, we'll have a major discussion about him. Is he one who's truly of the faith or not? Does he really believe what God says? And he, Abram takes what he owns with him, and it says that he brought individuals with him. We know that he had individuals that worked for him as slaves and servants, but the, there seems to be some indicator that there might have been a few other people that went with him that are saying, you know what, he's talking about this one true God and we kind of believe what he says. And so we're going with him. But whatever the case is, Abram shows his trust in God by obeying God's commands. It's the way it's been for thousands of years. How do people display their faith in God? They show it by obeying God's commands. You get to the New Testament and you have this idea, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. This is the same way it's been for generation upon generation. Those that are followers of God will display their faith in obedience. And he does this and he goes. And you look at this travel as he gets to the land of Canaan, verse 6, Abram passed through the land unto the place of uh, Sikkim, we would know as Shechem, the plain of Morah. The Canaanite was in the land. And then you see this in verse number 8, he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hai on the east. There he built an altar on the, to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed, journeyed going on to, still towards the south, or we would know that as the Negev. That's the Hebrew word there. But you see Abram do, he goes through and he gets to this land and God communicates to him and then you just see him going through this land central portion of that area the central mountain that eventually the nation of israel when they conquer the land are going to meet at to discuss the blessings and cursings that god could give to them and then down to bethel we eventually know that is the house of god where jacob sees this ladder ascending and descending the angels ascending and descending uh, up and down into uh, from heaven to earth and then he goes down to the Negev. He goes through this land. It's God showing him this land. Okay, I'm going to show you the land that I promised to you. And he's just, as you see here, going through and seeing the land as God has displayed it and revealed it to him. But there is one element here that we oftentimes ignore or perhaps run over in our reading because it's very brief. But it's the important part You go, what's that? Well, as you have in, in verse number uh, 6, it says that Abraham went to Shechem to the plain of Morah. And what we know is that that word plain probably is referring to a tree or trees of this place of the teacher. Morah, that's what that word means. And most uh, people indicate that this would have been a place where the Canaanites would have their worship. You find the Canaanites oftentimes setting up a tree and by it setting up a place of worship. 
I can remember going to Dan and being in that uh, place in the northern part of Israel where the nation of Israel eventually fell into the sin of idolatry and they have a place for an altar there and there is this massive tree that's next to it. And what you have here is that Abram comes to Shechem right in the center of Canaanite territory. They have this place that seems by all indicators to be a place where they did their worship. And this is why you read there, it says in verse number 6, and the Canaanite was then in the land. Here you've got people who by their nature have rejected God. They've taken his things lightly and you now have generation upon generation after this, people who have ignored God and they've gone their own way and done their own thing and the sin of their region is gross as we're going to see as we read through the story, just what they are promoting and they're okay with. And here he comes to a place that's the central portion where they worship their gods and they have their own created gods that they've come up with. And God comes in verse number 7 and says this, Unto thy seed will I give this land, and there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. You know, what does he do? He takes an altar. Now, it doesn't say that he sacrificed, but there would have been a sacrifice that was offered. But what he does is he sets up an altar and realize this, that the altars that the Israelites start setting up are going to be differently shaped than the ones the Canaanites have. If you had an Israelite altar, it would have been a square. Whereas you go to, you can see places where they had altars now today that they've dug up that the Canaanites had. They were a big circle. What he set up was an altar that was clearly different than all the other altars. He offers a sacrifice there to God and leaves behind something right in the center of where the Canaanites are at, what they worship, and he's leaving a marker there where he's been at saying, there is one God and he is the Lord and I worship him. And he leaves Shechem, and you see what happens. Verse 8, he removed from thence into the mountain the east of Bethel, pitched his tent there, having Bethel in the west, Hay in the east, and there he builded an altar unto the Lord. So the next location he comes to, he builds an altar to sacrifice to God. And remember this as we went back uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 4, we had this statement, and called upon the name of the Lord. This is what the line of Seth started doing. It's not this that they're praying to the Lord. The, the word there called upon the name of the Lord. The idea is this, is that they proclaimed the name of the Lord. What he's doing by putting this altar there in this place and this location, he starts proclaiming there is one who is the Lord. Jehovah God, he's the one God. There isn't a whole bunch of gods. There is one who's created this world. His name is Jehovah. He is the Lord. He is God. And he is to be worshiped and praised. And then as you go, you find this, that he journeyed again and went turned south. Wherever Abraham goes, even though he has a tent and eventually he folds up those tents and he goes someplace else, he's left behind wherever he's been reminders that there is one true God. He is doing what we would hopefully do wherever we're at as strangers and pilgrims wandering through this world. Wherever we're at, we at least put up a marker a statement, a declaration, a testimony that there is a God in heaven. One who has sent His Son in our time, has sent His Son to save and rescue us. That God wants to be a blessing to the nations and the people. That He sent His Son to save people from their sins. Wherever we go in life, like what Abraham did, he was a testimony to the world around him. He was being a, and we put it this way, and to put it in the terms of this passage, he was being a blessing to the nations. He's lifting up the very thing that they need wherever he goes. And by these altars, he is putting these permanent things, though he's no longer there when he leaves. It's there. There's this altar to the one true God. 
And people would come and worship their false gods and go, well, what's this here? Well, this is this, this Jehovah that this, this Abraham had that he came through here and is declaring is the one true God. He put this up. There's a testimony there. And so what Abram is doing is that he is actually, what verse 2 said, that he is, thou shalt be a blessing. He's going through this region of the Canaanites who have rejected God, and he's putting up these altars and marking out, here is one God who can be a blessing to you because he is the real God. And so what Abram does is that he trusts and obeys, and as he goes through the land, he is being a blessing wherever he goes. He's able to tell people about the one true God. Wherever he goes, by the testimony of his declaration of spending the time to build an altar. And he would do this wherever he went. Now, you say, okay, well, what's this passage supposed to be me? Is the God going to suddenly appear to me and uh, let me know, you know, in the middle of the night certain things I'm supposed to do and move to a different location? And be? No, that's not what is an application of this directly. But as I said, I, I'm going to give you two, a, an application that has to deal with Christmas to start off with. Okay, you say, what does this passage have to do with Christmas? Okay, I want you to take your Bibles because we're going to go to the New Testament from here on out. And I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, you have uh, at this time almost 450 years of silence. Last prophet was a man by the name of Malachi, about 450 B.C., before Christ. He gives his message, and you have silence, no statements made about God. And all of a sudden, you have now this book that we know as Matthew. And the very first thing that you read in this book of Matthew, as you've had silence for the nation of Israel from their prophets, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, part of the Christmas story, Okay, even though it's a genealogy, it is a part of getting it there. Look at how it starts. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob. Jacob begat Judas' brethren. And you go all the way through this, and you finally get to this one in verse 16. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. And it adds this little thing at the end who is called Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one who God chose to be the blessing for our world, the anointed one. You start off with Abraham being a blessing to all nations. Well, you get to the end of his line and his great people and whatever you have, you have the one who is the blessing. The Christmas story is the answer to what you have in the story of Abraham and the promise, the coming of the Son who will be a blessing to the whole world comes through this one, Abram, who was promised that he would be a blessing and his descendants after him. And so you go, oh, okay, that's the connection to this. That is. But I want to go to the other side of this and say, okay, what's the practical application of what we found in Abraham? And I want you to turn to Luke chapter 14. Because as Jesus goes about and he's ministering to people, there are people that are coming and, and just seeing his display of blessing, okay? He's feeding them. He's healing them. I mean, those are good things. Those are blessings, but they're kind of half-heartedly following him. They're not really putting their faith in him. They're really not truly following them in heart. They're receiving some of the benefits of blessing. But the Lord finally gets to a point where he's got so many people coming after him. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse number 25, says this, And there went great multitudes with him, I mean, he's got large crowds, people wanting to see what's going on. And he turned and he said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother, his wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Okay, you say, what does that have to do with Abraham? Does that not sound some of the echoing of what Abraham had where God said, okay, I want you to leave your country, 
the place of where you've been at, everything that you've known, I want you to leave that behind in order to go where I want you to go. I mean, it's not that Abraham hated his family and hated his country and hated all those things, but he loved God so much that he was willing to follow God to the leaving behind of those things. That the relationship with God and the following of Him was more important than anything else. Well, for an individual to be a follower of Jesus Christ, they're going to have to have the faith that says, I'm willing to leave everything to have this one. I'm willing to leave behind family and country and everything else because I need this one and I'm willing to follow Him wherever I go. I mean, look at how it goes in verse number 27. Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. If you're not willing to say and follow me to the exclusion of everything else, including your own selfish desires, you really can't be my disciple. For which, uh, verse 28, the Lord says, For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first, counteth the cost, whether he hath sufficient to finish it? lest happily after he hath laid the foundation he's not able to finish it and behold it become uh, behold it begin to mock him saying this man began to build and was not able to finish i mean there's consideration in this is it really worth it to follow this one verse number 31 and what king going to war make a war against another king sitteth not down first and consulted whether he's able to with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand or else while the other is yet great way off, he sendeth an ambassador or an ambassador and desireth conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. What you have is an Abraham is a picture of one who's willing to leave all to follow God. And in the New Testament, what Christ says is this, you've got to be willing to follow me, leave everything else behind, and realize this, Jesus is God in human flesh. This is God making the statement, you must follow me, but be willing to leave everything else behind. Now think about this as the individuals who go and they follow Christ and they follow Him wherever He goes. When He finally says, okay, I'm going away to a place that I'm preparing for you. Just like Abraham is eventually one who's to declare that he was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. He realized the stuff that was here was not permanent. He was looking for a permanent location. Well, the Lord says, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. But while you're here, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, go ye therefore and teach all, okay, don't take that lightly, teach all nations. What are we doing when we follow God and we are following Him faithfully and we go and do what He says and we go out in this world that we're in? We're being a blessing to the nations because what we're doing is we're going to the nations and teaching them and laying out for them, here's this God, like Abraham, building altars wherever he goes. We're teaching these individuals to become followers of God. That's what it means. Teach all nations. Make disciples of the nations. We have that opportunity that wherever we go, if we're individuals who said, I follow Christ to the absence of everything else to give that up, I'm willing to follow him wherever. Well, then wherever you're going to go in this world that God may send you. And you have the story of Acts as these individuals are persecuted. First they end up in Samaria. Then they end up in Antioch. They're preaching Christ wherever they go. People are getting saved. So it is for us, like Abraham, if we're followers of Christ and we've given up everything and in faith follow Him, you're going to be going from place to place and being a blessing to the nations the people that you have contact with and you think about the people you have contact with, they come from all nations and tribes. America is the great mixing pot. We have a lot of nations and tribes and people that are here and you have an opportunity to lift up Christ wherever you go, whether it's in your office, whether it's in your family gatherings, whether it's the community you're in, you have the opportunity to magnify Christ wherever you go. And so in some ways, we're modern day abraham's hopefully we recognize the stuff that we have is not permanent we're strangers and pilgrims in this world like abram 
But if we're following God like Abraham, wherever we go, we're at least going to be marking down this is the one true God, and at least we have opportunities to do this. And it may only be temporary where we have it, but you're lifting up God for people to see you're being a blessing to the nations. And so hopefully we as spiritual descendants, not physical descendants, and we're not the nation of Israel, but as descendants of faith, people who have faith in God, that we reflect what Abraham is like in being a testimony and a blessing to the nations. Lord, we thank you for your word. Reminder of this individual, Abraham, who left everything, but then wherever he went, he was attempting to lift up your name, proclaim that name, setting up things that people would for a long time afterwards still be able to consider who God was. May those of us that know Jesus as Savior be like that as we go in the world that we're in. Our decision may have to follow Christ may have cost us some of the relationships that were so familiar to us, but wherever we go in this world, may we be lifting up Christ. That people can see Christ, that they can know who He is, that He's displayed, and that we have, well, put up some things where people will, perhaps by testimony, by word, that they'll at least have some knowledge of who Christ is. Now, it's their responsibility to accept that. But may we be the blessing that we can be, offering the eternal blessing of Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's one here today that has not accepted Jesus Christ, may they realize that this has been part of your plan. From Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, very clearly stated here in the life of Abraham that you had one that was going to be a blessing to the nations, an individual that could provide that. That their only hope of enjoying eternal blessings is to know Jesus the Son. He was part of your plan to save all mankind. That's why he's called the Messiah, the, the anointed one, the chosen one of God. May they that don't know Christ here in this room, may they be ones who come and accept Christ, that this has been part of your plan, that he is the blessing that they need. He's died in their place to forgive them of their sins, to give them the hope of eternal life, that they would accept that. So Lord, work in the heart of individuals that don't know your Son. May they accept this one who was the hope of individuals of Abraham, Adam, and Eve, that there would be one who would be a blessing to the world. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your plan that you don't work haphazardly, but that you have had this rolling for many, many years to be a God who blesses the nations and all people. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your gift and your son. In his name we pray. Amen.